Have you ever wanted to try watercolor? Teresa Escone's Etsy tutorials for our absolute beginners ages 10 and older are PDF downloads with easy to understand instructions, supply list, definitions, a full color frameable image of the art, and line drawings. The paintings can be completed in less than 60 minutes. See TeresaEscone.com for more information. That's T-E-R-E-S-A-A-S-C-O-N-E.com. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 79 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about making and selling handcrafted products with my guest, Arona Konaraj. Arona Konaraj started Boku with her husband, John Booth, in 2002 as a place to combine and market their work. Both Arona and John started out as artists, Arona as a sculptor and John as a painter. But as time passed, their endeavors grew to include ceramics, fiber arts, architecture, and furniture making, to name only a few. Needless to say, Boku defines itself as a a multidisciplinary studio where the husband and wife team explore a variety of mediums, both individually and collectively. Most people, however, would probably know Arona as a printmaker and surface designer through her work in creating fabric bags, personal and home items, which showcase her unique pattern designs. Arona Kanaraj, welcome. Hi, Abby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so great talking to you. I have admired your work for years and years online, and so it's wonderful to finally get a chance to talk together. So um, first, let's just start off by telling me how um, Boku got its name. Um, Well, Boku is basically a hybrid of um, John's last name and my last name together. So it was, you know, the days before Benifer. (laughs) So we, when we first started, um, we weren't really quite sure what we were going to make. And we didn't really want a business name that was reflective of a, you know, particular thing or style. And we thought Booth and Kunaraj sounded like an accounting firm. (laughs) you know, let's, let's try to combine our last names together. And, um, and so we did, and, and we kind of liked that it was a play on the French word beaucoup too. Right. So, um, it just kind of stuck. And, and, um, when we first started our business, we were always told, um, by lots of people that we should choose something really short and simple and kind of easy to remember rather than something really long. And so that's how it started and then it kind of stuck. So we, we kept it. And it's always written in lowercase letters. Yeah. And then actually the, the funny thing was I, I, I started to rebrand recently and then I changed everything to uppercase. It was really strange. Like I would say for like over 10 years, we did lowercase and I always, you know, when I write emails to people, everything, it's always lowercase. I don't know. There was just something kind of um, gentler about lowercase. And then when I was rebranding it, I just decided to kind of um, go with um, uppercase just to kind of give it more of a a stronger presence. Interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about. Um, but I've, I have always noticed in the past, at least, that it's always been lowercase. So so um, tell us a little bit about your background. Where were you born? And I know um, you weren't born in Canada, right? When did you come to Canada? Um, I was born in Vientiane, Laos, which is um, a small country in Southeast Asia near Thailand. And I was um, I came to Canada when I was four years old. And um, 
my parents um, chose Toronto um, when a lot of our family members have cho- had chosen, you know, to go to places like France and the U.S. and Montreal. Um, my parents chose Toronto, and I'm kind of glad they did because it's it's probably the best city in Canada, I think. Um, but a lot of um, our family went to France and in Montreal because um, Laos was colonized by um, the French. And so as a second language, everybody knew how to speak French. And so it was easier for them to immigrate to, you know, a city that they can kind of communicate and find jobs. And so when my parents first came, they really struggled because they didn't really know the language. And um, my dad uh, worked as a baker and my mom, um, she worked as a seamstress. And so, um, funny enough, my mother actually works for me. So, and she helps me produce a lot of our, our products. And so it was kind of, um, nice to kind of have a full circle of that. Wow. That's fascinating. So mm-hmm. they were both, I mean, be, both being a baker and being a seamstress are really creative careers, um, and creative jobs, you know, every day you're making things with your hands and, um, were you kind of encouraged to explore creativity and art as a child? Um, yeah, it it was, it was sort of, um, you know, when I think back about my childhood, you know, the things that my parents did, um, were because, you know, essentially we were poor. And so, you know, things like my mother would never sort of buy, you know, processed food. She would make everything from scratch and she would make our clothes and my dad would, you know, construct things and, and make furniture pieces. And, you know, when you're, when you're growing up as a kid, you don't really, think differently about that. And then, and I realized it's, it was, it was sort of, they did, they did those things because they couldn't afford to buy things. And then I think that sort of, um, kind of instilled in me in, in that sort of idea of making too, and, and, um, and not having to think about sort of, you know, buying things. And when we were growing up, you know, we would go and pick up fabrics and my mom would, you know, make us dresses and things like that. And we wouldn't think of going to a store and, and buying finished dresses. So it was kind of interesting that, you know, we had that kind of background and, and I didn't really think about it much until I got older and realized how much that affected my sort of thinking. And as well as my own children, you know, like my daughter, if we're going to you know get something, she'll say, well, let's make it rather than let's go buy it. So yeah, I was just going to say that my, my daughters always think that we can make anything and it's yeah. so fascinating. They're like, Oh, we'll just make that. Mommy will make it. I'm like, I can't make everything. <laughs> I know. And then unfortunately, like, now, as they get older, we're getting busier. And so I have less time to, you know, sit and make her dresses or make their Halloween costumes. So it gets harder. And then, of course, their interests change so much. Like, um, you know, like I can't make this, you know, sort of you know, type of costume that requires all these like, you know, robotic pieces or something. It's like, uh, hmm. You don't want to be like, you know, a ghost or something. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know, it's 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 not so much like that. Um you know, every day. So. Right. But so when you um, were leaving high school, when you're finished high school and you were leaving home and getting ready to go to, to college, what, what did you think you wanted to do and, and what did you end up studying? Um, well, I, I was always making a, as a kid. I, I, you know, I did a lot of sewing and knitting and all kinds of crafts and I've always enjoyed making things with my hands. And so initially I wanted to go into architecture but I sucked at math, so I didn't get the right credits to 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 do that. And then I um, applied to um, 
uh, Ryerson University for photography and film. And then I missed the interview for that one. And then I just, I, I decided that maybe I should go to, um, art school. So I went to the Ontario college of art and I thought that that would be better for me than going into a specific program and having more exposure to a lot of different kinds of, you know, mediums and techniques. And so it was, so I, I went there and then, um, I did mostly, um, ceramic sculpture when I was there. And then after I finished four years there, I went to um, a school in Halifax, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. And then I continued there to do some more ceramics. And um, and then I started doing some um, printmaking and then as well as doing sculpture using, you know, um, bronze and, and stone and getting more interested in other materials other than clay. And then after that, I went to grad school at the um, University of Waterloo. And then at that point, that was when my work completely changed and I kind of transitioned to more uh, textile-based sculptures. And um, I did that. All along, sorry to interrupt, but all along it was really sort of fine art focused, like with you doing ceramic sculpture and then to textile sculpture and bronze. I mean, these are really going to be like um, fine art pieces that would be displayed in a gallery. Yeah. And I had shows in galleries and, you know, I applied for grants and I sort of did that whole route for, I would say probably a good, you know, I would say close to 10 years. And then, um, I, I did. So the turning point was I did this, um, this show in Toronto called the Toronto outdoor show where, um, it's at city hall and all these different makers will go and sort of pitch a tent and, and showcase their work. And um, it was really the first time that I kind of showed my work in more of um, a commercial setting where I was there to sell my work, not just exhibit it. And I had a really great response. Um, I sold all my pieces and I won two awards at the show. Wow. And, what, kind uh, of, um, what kind of work were you showing at that? Well, I was doing more of a textile-based work. And then what I did was a lot of my work that I did was really installation-based. And so what I did for this show was I created sort of um, smaller structures and put them in shadow box frames. And that I felt like it gave it more of like this product idea because you had this sort of um, kind of object inside of a box and people kind of understood it. You know, I take that and I, you know, put it on a table or hang it on a wall and, and it didn't give them that confusion. Like a lot of my other sculpture work, it was sort of loose and, you know, you would put it on a wall and some people wouldn't really know how it would work and it was really confusing. And so I think by kind of creating these shadow boxes, it, it gave it its own little kind of environment space. And it was easily understood, right? So people yeah. could come by, they could see how they could bring it home and it was what like, they would do with it. So as you said, it was almost like art as a product now. Exactly. And um, during that show, I met this woman, um, Melanie Egan, who is the craft coordinator at Harborfront Center, which is this place in Toronto near the waterfront that um, is a great artisan residence studio space. And they, they have jewelry, they have glass, ceramics, and textiles. And she had suggested um, that I applied to to do the residency. And my first remark to her was, aren't they all screen printers? <laughs> and then she's like, oh, no, no. She goes, you know, we have, we've had a lot of, you know, different – um, you know, people come through and we've had some sculpture based people. And, and so at the time, you know, John and I were living in this tiny, tiny little one bedroom apartment. And I was like, Oh, the idea of having a studio would be so luxurious. And because the, um, the studios were fun, 
funded by the government, the rent was so inexpensive. I think it was at the time when I was there, it was like $60 a month, which is super cheap. And you had access to like a full fledged studio. I mean, you had to share it with other residents, but it was just like, you know, the sky's the limit, like anything you wanted to make, you had the space. And so I said, well, it didn't hurt to apply. And so I applied and I got in. And then my first week there, I kind of, you know, was getting set up and I thought to myself, I really can't make my sculptures here. Like, it's just, you know, I don't think that if I did that, I would really fully utilize, you know, the the studio space. And so um, a lot of the residents there at the time were all like, you know, screen printers and, you know, doing different kinds of stuff. And so I basically said to, you know, some of the, the, um, the students, um, the studio mates there, like, can you teach me what you're doing? And so they taught me how to do repeat prints and, you know, all these different kinds of things with screen printing. And then I started doing it um, because, you know, throughout my work, even though I was doing sculptural work, um, I did a lot of drawing. And so I really enjoyed that idea of um, taking my drawings and, and uh, you know, being able to kind of produce it on any type of surface. So it was a really, so screen printing became like kind of this sort of light bulb moment, like, Oh, this is actually really kind of a cool process. And I did do some screen printing in school, but it was mostly on paper. And, you know, we had to do like so many colored layers and, and with, with screen printing on cloth, you could just do one color and it could be really interesting. And so, um, the first project that I did from the screen printing was I, did a series of multiples, um, like in fine arts, um, multiples are used in like sort of small editions. So you would do a multiple of 10 of something. And so I did this whole series on, um, um, my body. And so I did things like I, I took my hair and I had really long hair at the time and I photocopied my hair and I used that photocopy of my hair to be like a, a screen print pattern. And then I was doing some other sort of types of things, um, you know, using different, uh, you know, sort of patterns that was related to my body. And so I did that as a series of multiples at first. And then, you know, in the downtime, I would just, you know, I would just sort of do doodles of, you know, flowers and things. And, and I was screen printing them on cloth. And then I would make them into little bags for myself and for like my studio mates. And then, you know, people were really enjoying them and like them. And then I just started making more. And then someone's like, oh, you should, you know, sell these. And I was like, oh, and so what, what would, where would I go? And they're like, you should go to the one of a kind show, which is basically the biggest craft show in, in Ontario. And so I applied and I got like this really small booth and, you know, I just, I had a very simple setup with like an ironing board and some little boxes with some of my stuff. And like, I sold everything and I was like, Oh, this is like, this is really, this is really great. You know, like I would be spending like days and months on like my sculptures they were so time consuming and then if you you know if you got like three or four thousand dollars for your sculpture it'd be like so exciting and and so you know I would sell my work but it'd be like maybe once a month or once every few months and I was thinking to myself well this you know whole making of you know things on you know and making accessible items is is kind of um you know enticing because yeah it sounds like it sounds like that feedback from the buying public from the beginning really like was really motivating for you to say like, okay, I can turn my art into this product and then I can sell the product at a lower price, but sell more of them and like talk to people and see them use it. And they understand it maybe in a, in a easier way, a more straightforward way than a piece of fine art might be, or a sculpture or an installation might be. And that that sort of interplay between like commerce and art was, was appealing to you. 
Yeah. And it was, and also I think the idea of it being fast was kind of appealing because I had spent, you know, all these years in school and all these years outside of school making art that was so, so labor intensive, which I enjoyed. And so, um, that, I think that's why, um, for me, um, doing production is really meditative. Like I don't find production, um, as strenuous as some people do, because I think all those years of doing my artwork and, and that sort of repetitive action of doing sewing or cutting something that's, you know, I, I kind of go into a zone and it becomes really meditative. And so, um, that idea of production was, was, um, what kind of worked for me in, in sort of my, um, my work ethics and my, my, my method of working. So it kind of worked out really well. Right. So after that first show, so you had that show and it was, um, you know, that like sort of craft kind of show and it was really, um, successful. It sounds like you sold out. And so did that then lead you to come back to John and say, Hey, maybe we should open a store or was it, was, was there some steps in between there? Well, at the time, John and I were kind of exploring different things. He was, you know, he had gone to school for architecture. And then after he did architecture, he, he went, um, no, actually he started painting first. Um, and then he went to architecture school at university of Toronto. And when he was finished, he just didn't feel like he wanted to sit in an office because all his, you know, classmates, they all got jobs working in an office. And he just felt like, I don't want to sit in an office doing drawings and I want to kind of explore other things. So he was interested a lot in, in doing furniture and, you know, doing smaller sort of um, home objects. And so we both were doing kind of separate things. And then at that point we were like, um, I think we, we didn't really think of doing it together as in terms of, Oh, let's do it together. I think it was sort of like a, a financial reason. Like I think, you know, like creating a business and creating a business, like registering our business and things like that. And instead of registering two businesses, we're like, well, let's just register one business and then just do, you know, our separate things and then do things together. And so it kind of grew out of that. And we kind of, um, you know, there's always a lot of cross pollination with, with John and I, and, and I always really appreciate his sort of feedback in my work because his mindset and his sort of um, thinking is so different from mine. And, you know, he sees things differently than the way I would see things. So I always really appreciate that kind of having someone there that can work with you on that. And, and he, he gives a lot of input, even though it's, it always, you know, looks like it's mostly me, <laughs> you know, because I'm like sort of the face of like social media and a lot of things. And so he's always there. It's just, he's kind of like the silent um, partner. And how did you two meet? Um, we met at um, the art gallery of Ontario. So we both work there and, um, it was really funny. I always, I always say to people, the first thing that when I first met John, I, I didn't really like him because, um, I think I was a bit threatened by him because he was so smart and he was like, you know, he, um, he was very smart, but then he wasn't very talkative like me. And so I was really kind of nervous around him. And then we just started talking and then he was showing me the things that he was working on. And I was just so interested in just basically the whole package, like him and then his, his talent and his ideas. And, um, yeah. And so we worked there for a good while and then we had always sort of worked there. Plus I did, um, some other teaching jobs and then we, we ran our business. And then at, at one point after we had, um, our kids, we just decided that we needed to do this business full time. So we haven't been full time for a very long time. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. So um, I know you started working together in 2002 and at that time you, you actually did, it sounds like you've had other jobs sort of throughout, but you, you were teaching art, uh, part-time. Is that right? When yeah. You first I was, started? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. 
And and I read in an interview that you you said, um, and and I'll quote here. In hindsight, quitting my day job was one of the best decisions I made. And I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about sort of what that path looked like toward quitting the day job and focusing full time on the business, and and why you felt like it was a good decision. Well, one of the things that I always tell sort of people who are starting out is that one of the things that you really need in order to kind of just get through you know, being a self-employed person or just being um, a maker in this day and age is you have to have a lot of self-confidence. Like you have to have self-confidence and you have to have a belief that what it, what you do is interesting and that other people will find it interesting. Because I think when you have that sort of self-doubt, that's when you kind of, you're not able to kind of overcome a lot of, you know, hurdles that it, it does, the risk it takes to, to quit your job, right? And so, I think I, I think, you know, when I was younger, I was really naive. I thought that, oh, what I'm doing is great. <laughs> Everyone's going to want it. So I'm just going to, you know, just quit and, you know, do go ahead and do this. And, um, you know, and, you know, we had, you know, we, we had kids and we had a mortgage. So it was really kind of at first, you know, I thought, well, we can't do it because, you know, uh, well, the good thing about teaching was that I was able to work, you know, less hours, but got paid more. So it was almost like equivalent to a full-time job. So I was lucky to have that kind of a job. And then when I finally decided to quit, I realized that the amount of money that I was making like per term for a class was, we made that in a week in our business. And that was like a huge sort of shocking moment because I was like, why did we wait so long to quit? Like we are making way more money with our business than we were with these jobs, but you can't, sometimes you can't leave those jobs because it just gives you a certain type of security. You know, you get a regular paycheck, you know, when it's coming, you know what your job entails. And then you just, you know, and everything else that you do as a self-employed person, it's all on you. Everything is on you. Right. And some people don't want that pressure because it's like so much pressure to have, you know, everything, determined by your actions. And yeah. Your I was just saying to my husband last night that when you are self-employed in a career like this, in an art career, you literally have to constantly pedal the bike. Like if you oh, let yeah. the bike slow down or you get off for a few minutes, things stop. And, you know, so you have, you, there's just a certain kind of pressure where you have to continually pedal constant, constant, constant pedaling. And yeah, at and the same time, there's a lot of reward from that because every dollar that comes in came in because you pedaled. But every time money doesn't come in or projects don't come in, it's because you stopped, you know? Exactly. And um, it's really funny because sometimes, you know, I'll talk to like uh, family members and they'll always say to me, oh, you know, you could take a break, you're self-employed, you know, you could take like a week off. It's no big deal. And they don't realize that you taking a week off, it's like, when you come back, you have to work twice as hard or more just to kind of get caught up, you know? I just want to pause things here for a moment to talk about our sponsor. Teresa Escone portrays her impressions of Alaska's flowers, landscapes, and animals in a colorful, distinctive style that captures the rugged beauty of Alaska, where she lives. Her original watercolors have been sent to Korea, England and Russia as official gifts from the municipality of Anchorage. From 2001 to 2005, she designed the holiday note card for the Anchorage Police Department. An award-winning PBS-produced video called Landscapes of the Imagination, the Art of Teresa Escone, honored her in 1988. Teresa has taught 
art techniques for more than 30 years and introduced hundreds of people to the joy of creativity. She taught through the Anchorage Community Schools and traveled around Alaska through the UAF system conducting classes. Her teaching led to step-by-step learning methods used in her book, The Ultimate Palette, for which she holds a design patent. Teresa taught through the UAA Community and Technical College for many years and created UAA's Ultimate Watercolor Academy for adults who wanted to learn watercolor in a safe and non-threatening atmosphere, a hallmark of her teaching style. The success of the Academy and its student art shows resulted in her nomination for the UAA 2000 Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. She also teaches watercolor classes on cruise ships. Teresa's illustrated Things in the Sky, a textbook for primary school portraying the Arctic sky and elements of weather. The following titles were written and illustrated by Teresa and published by her company, Alaskan Portfolio Press. We're All Artists, Watercolor for Everyone, Painting Pleasure, Adventure in Watercolor, The Berry Fairies of Alaska, and Alaska Berry Fairies Book Two. Teresa ventured into cotton fabric design with Creatures of the Wild for Robert Kaufman, and in 2016, Wildflowers by Teresa Escone for Clothworks. She's also licensed her design to McGowan Manufacturing, Standstone Creations, Millwood Art, and Denali Dreams. Visit her online at T-E-R-E-S-A-A-S-C-O-N-E.com. That's TeresaEscone.com for more information. And you can also check her out at Escone Art Tutorials on Etsy. Thanks so much, Teresa. And now back to the show. And I think that um, when we started, it got harder when we started selling online. Like when we would do craft shows, it was easy because craft shows were, you know, a specific time and then you just built up inventory and then you would bring it to the craft show. Whereas online, it's like a daily thing. And so, um, which, you know, I think that that was sort of a big turning point for our business was selling online. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. And um, uh, I know you opened an Etsy shop in 2009, it looks like, just from looking at your shop. That's when the little date says it began. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that the the first entree into selling online? No, I I first started selling online um, on my own website. And, um, this was before, you know, Shopify and all these like really great websites, you know, that come on that allow you to just basically plop in your things and then you've got an instant shop. This is like way before those. And so I would be online. I would say, I don't know how many brain cells I lost trying to do all the coding. I did all the coding and all the stuff on our website to create like our own website on there because, also, when I first started, Etsy wasn't around yet. I think I started selling online 2004, and I think Etsy came around 2006? 2005, yeah. 2005. 2005, so, yes. So shortly after. And so we we started selling online because when we were doing the shows, we would get, you know um, – um, you know, sort of comments from people, oh, it'd be great to buy this, you know, when uh, during your off season. And then that's when we thought, okay, well, it'd be a good time to kind of start online. And also around the time I started the shop, that was when blogs were really popular and were kind of, kind of, you know, hitting the scene, this whole thing with blogging. And so I started creating my own blog and it was really funny. Actually, I, 
I, I didn't create a blog for a while, but there, were, there was an incident that happened where I was talking to a big blogger and I wanted them to kind of maybe post something that I had done. And they kind of gave me a shrug off and I was really annoyed. I was like, oh, you know, and then I thought, why don't I just create my own blog and just keep talking about myself, right? <laughs> promoting, promoting my work and do it, you know, what I'm doing on my daily basis. And, and so I did that and it was such a great thing for me. I think that was sort of... Um, one of the best things that I ever did was creating a blog because it really kind of gave me a lot of reflection on what I was doing. And then also became this journal. And, and when I started creating it, it I didn't think of it as much of, um, like a marketing tool, like we, but we look at social media today. It was more like just like a, a journal just to kind of keep, you know, um, Liam was, you know, really little at the time. And I just want to kind of chronicle like him growing up and then all the different things that I was working on. And so it was really great. And then I started getting comments and feedback. And then that, that, um, connected with the online shop kind of really helped help it grow. Cause I would, you know, sort of show a piece that I was working on that was new and then I would put it online and you know, the people who were reading the blog would go and um, buy it. And so it was really a great connection for the yeah, two. Yeah, those early days of blogging were so special that way. I mean, I, I started my blog in 2005. So, um, and um, it was just such a, it, it, you describe it exactly right. Like it was not a marketing tool. It was really a journal. It was an online journal where you would connect with people. You would show them the process. And when it was finished, you'd post a picture. They'd go to your shop and they would buy it. And it was and, done. And I remember waking up and, you, you know, just sitting there, you know, with my tea and just like reading all the different blogs I was following. It was like a really, fun thing and and um and then slowly of course you know other sort of social medias started to take over and so I don't write my blog at all anymore because it's just too much work now because I would have to take pictures upload it and write this whole thing and and I kind of miss it sometimes I, I kind of think about going back to it sometimes because I find like I mostly use Instagram and I find that Instagram it's so it's so like um is limiting sometimes because you can't really tell a whole story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to come back to talking about Instagram in a little bit because I, I love your Instagram and I, and I think it's um, something that I think people are curious about. So I definitely want, I want to come back to it, but, um, but I do want to go back to sort of the, the beginning of selling online. And um, uh, so, and so let's go back to Etsy for a second. So you, you did, um, you did set up an Etsy shop at some point and, and I'm interested in the fact that you're still there, right? Like, so a lot of people, as you said, when Shopify and some of these other e-commerce options came on the scene and became very easy and drag and drop and that sort of thing, um, and you certainly have a, a, follow, a very strong following and are you know have a great name recognition and traffic and all of that. So, so I guess one of my questions is is why stick with Etsy? Well, um, I started on Etsy really late. I was actually, to be quite honest, I was really hesitant on selling on Etsy because at the time, Etsy to me. Um, you know, I was trying to kind of create a brand and I felt like the brand that the, the people who were selling on Etsy, they, they were more like people who were just like, Oh, I made this, you know, thing and I'm going to sell it. And that's, and then I'll make this thing and that thing. And I felt like a lot of the makers were not like, you know, um, I don't know how to try to say it, but you know what I mean? Like they weren't like a, a company. I just felt like they were just a lot of different people. Um, it was very like eBay, like, you know, just, I had, I have this whole random 
you know, a bunch of things and I'm going to just use this forum to kind of start selling. So it wasn't really appealing to me. And I remember, um, at one of the, at the one of a kind show, I met this, um, this couple. And at the time they had just started this company called Fitzfeld, which is a really big company now. And, and they had just recently sold it to Noll. And she was selling on Etsy and she really loved it. And she basically convinced me to go on there and sell. And so if you look back at my first sales on Etsy, a lot of it was just like, um, at first I wanted to use it as like, I was really interested in like things that I found in vintage shops. So I used it as like a, you know, selling vintage things. And then I started selling like things on sale. Like, oh, I would have these little group sales. Okay. These things didn't sell. I'll sell these three things together. And then all of a sudden I started getting these emails from people. Oh, that thing that I saw in that photo, I want that. I want to buy that. Can you make it for me? And I was just like, yeah, sure. And then I just realized like after a few months or so, just the traffic, like the people that were coming from there were just like, they were really great. They just kept wanting things and wanting things. And so then I decided, okay, I'm going to start selling all my things on Etsy. And then the reason why I moved over to um, the other shop was because I felt like the layout of Etsy was really confusing. Like if you wanted to kind of show things in categories, it was hard. And then when people would go through the site, it was just kind of overwhelming. You're going through page after page of stuff. And so I decided that I only wanted to sell like the things that were popular, which were bags. And then on my other website, I would have a variety of things. I would have the kids things. I would have like home things and, you know, just a variety of things because you had more control of the layout of the, the site. And so, um, it, it, it's, it was going well. I mean, I mean, Etsy has, you know, their ups and downs. And the good thing about Etsy that I like is that they, they're able to fix a lot of things that become an issue. Like they're always ongoing and, and I've always appreciated that. And, um, I think, you know, there has been times where I've wanted to leave because it does get really expensive. Like we spend like almost like $3,000 a month just to pay for fees um, and so we kind of see Etsy as like almost like a brick and mortar, like we're renting a shop because the fees are so high. Um, but I stick with them because they do a lot of different things. Um, you know, they started this um, Etsy made in Canada show where all across Canada, there's a craft show that's in all the different communities in Canada. And it's all on the same day. Um, they do a lot of, you know, um, things with other sellers where they're trying to help them improve their shop, doing, you know, different sort of learning and marketing tools. And then, um, a lot, and then we sold at West Elm, they partnered with West Elm and they had, um, us there a few times selling our work. And I always feel like they're, um, a company that's like a, a community leader, you know, like they're trying to kind of help you as a maker and, um, and then, I'm going up to, um, I'm going to New York next week for their first conference, the Etsy up conference. Yeah. That's and I know so you were invited to go Yeah, as press. Um, and so I'm going there as a, as a, as a panelist, as a speaker. So I'm doing two talks. I'm doing a talk on, on, um, product development and then also on using how, how to use social media to kind of stand out with your brand. And so I, I'll be doing that there. And so I just feel like a lot of these things that they do, it's, it's, it helps me too as, as a, as a business owner. And I just feel like if I left them, I would feel like I'm losing out on that kind of community connection that I have right now. 
It's sort of being part of a movement that exactly. Mm -hmm. and yeah. um and you know to be honest like I'm working in my studio I'm so isolated you know in a way even though I'm in a, like one of the biggest cities in Canada I'm I'm really isolated in a way and so to have a, a company that I'm working with that is constantly sort of you know looking out for me and, and helping me improve my business I find like it's so valuable that I you know I, I feel like I can't leave that you know right now yeah no and I I hear you. And I feel like they're always doing something different and changing, you know, and, um, and the only time that I question leaving is, is, is sort of the, the money part, like, you know, all the money that you're, you're, you know, paying. And, but then I see that they do so many different things that what you're paying for is, is to kind of help you improve too. Right. So, um, it's just like, if you're paying rent for a place, you know, in a location somewhere. So all these things, you know, they, they work out in the end. Yeah. And. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I always see I see my Etsy fees as advertising because mm -hmm. they bring in customers that I wouldn't have been able to find elsewhere, my like on my on my own site or elsewhere. So they bring those customers to me, and then those customers become my customers. And so I sort of see those fees as just advertising fees. Yeah, and I find that with my my Shopify, like my Buko dot com site, I find like those customers are all regular customers, and then I find the customers I get on Etsy are all new customers. That's right, and that's why it's advertising fees. Yeah, because <laughs> they bring in the new customer, and then that what I do next is I have that person if they want to join my email list, and then once they're on my email list, then the next purchase they buy is from my own shop. And so for me, Etsy brings in the new flow of customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also get um, one of the things that you know we 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 have done for a while that we stopped doing is wholesale and and I get wholesale requests so often on Etsy it's like ridiculous and I just we just we did it for a while wholesale I mean that's basically how we stayed afloat was doing craft shows and wholesale. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about those years when you were doing wholesale and sort of why you decided. Um, because it sounds like you do really enjoy production work. So for some people doing, you know, production work is is too taxing. And so that's part of the reason why they get out of doing wholesale. Um, but and I know you, you probably still have a few wholesale accounts that you're you're sort of still working with. But overall, maybe it's shifted more to the brick and mortar shop and online. So so talk about that transition and um, how you used wholesale in the beginning to kind of get going and then how you transitioned out of it. Well, I, I always tell people that when you're starting out, you got to do everything and, and anything to get your name out. And wholesale is the best thing to do that because you, you work with these shops that are established in, you know, great neighborhoods. And when your stuff is there, you know, you'll, you'll gain a customer that you, that would probably have never known who you are because maybe they don't go to the craft shows or they don't buy it online. Um, so it's like the best kind of exposure you can ever get. And then the great thing about wholesale accounts is that, you know, you, you can, if you get a, a good amount going, you know, that can keep you going for a long time financially. And the thing is people always, people who own shops always need items to sell in their shops. Right. And so if your things do well, they'll constantly like reorder. And, and, um, so it's a really good stream of income for sure. And, um, you know, I, and I, the thing I think for me, um, for not doing wholesale, it's more just my lack of organizing that part of it. Um, and then also the financial part of it, because, um, a lot of my prices haven't changed in 10 years. Um, and it's just due to the fact that I, I look at sort of, you know, the fact that I make everything here in the studio. So I don't really have a lot of huge overhead costs. And I just find that, um, 
you know, selling something for half of what it is that I could normally get at a show or online. I just feel like it's such a, a huge financial hit. And, and we're trying, we're trying to um, develop a new product line that we can wholesale. And, and it's just taking a really long time because we're so busy with our own, you know, sort of day-to-day production. So I guess, um, for example, what we're trying to work on right now is to do a paper collection. And then also including that paper collection, things like, you know, pouches, tea towels, and maybe some simple tote bags and kind of have it more manufactured, you know, and then that way I can kind of give, you know, these shops a little bit of what we do rather than like the things that we normally do, because the stuff that we do, it takes so much time. And then the money that I ask for, it's really a good amount. And then if I were to, you know, if something's a hundred and to wholesale for 50, I just feel like I'm actually losing money. And, um, the only times I do wholesale now, um, is if it's a, you know, a shop that like, you know, there's a shop right now that's in Hong Kong that's interested in our work. And, you know, like we don't have a shop in Hong Kong, so that would be kind of interesting. And it's so expensive to ship to Asia. It might be good for some of our things there so that people have access to it. So things like that. Um, but I just find with wholesale, you have to be really kind of, you know, I was kind of in the early days, I was kind of, you know, just, um, just, you know, flying on the edge of my seat. I was not really organized with it. And I think that if I create specific products for wholesale, I think I could do it again. But right right now with our own inventory that we have right now, I can't do it. It's just, it's too much, um, you know, and we only have really just myself, my mom helps me and then Alex, there's only two of us. And then John helps too, but John helps more with like the, the finishing of the leather and things like that. So there isn't really a lot of us here. We're not a big factory. So it's just, we're just not capable of it. And, um, and since we do so well online that it just makes more sense for us to just keep that. Right. Yeah, no, I understand. I totally understand what you're saying financially. And did you, did you get all of the, back in the, in the heavy wholesale days, did you get all of your wholesale accounts just by being online and people seeing it or, or people coming to craft fairs? Or did you actually do, did you do trade shows at all or? No, I didn't do any trade shows, but yeah, all those things like at the craft shows and then they'll see it online or they'll see a friend wearing something and, and they're interested. And yeah, so, and there's some, some people I still wholesale to that I, was wholesaling to like from the early days because, you know, we have this relationship. So I still do things here and there, but I think a lot of people um, nowadays, like the people who I do work with, they, they know how it is with me. And if they order something for me, it'll take like a month to get, like, it's not like I, you know, I rush to get it done. Like I try my best, but it's just, we're so busy with other things. It's always so hard to kind of stop to kind of focus on, on a particular order. Um, so we just sort of do it. And and if they're patient enough, they'll get something from me. But, um, it's also, I, I, I kind of get disappointed with myself sometimes because it's a, it's an area of, um, that I really, that could be something else. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a, it's a market that I haven't really fully tapped into. And I have been asked a few times to do the Etsy wholesale. And, um, I think about it and then I always kind of panic and think, oh no, I can't do it. So then I, I don't. Right. I don't. And it sounds like in order to do it, you would really need to um, invest some new staff energy into managing yeah. it. And um, and that just isn't where you are right and now. Getting, yeah, and getting it produced. You right, know, and it exactly. Work. You know, I would have to get the fabric screen printed. I, to, I would have to get it cut and sewn somewhere else. And I just, you know, I just, I'm not ready for that right now. Right. Yeah, totally understandable. So, okay, so you opened this brick and mortar um, shop in Toronto in the fall of 2008. And 
I just wondered what the motivation was behind having an actual shop because it's pretty expensive. There's a lot of overhead and um, a lot to worry about and think about as far as, you know, having staff who are there and open hours and all the rest of that comes with having an actual Mm -hmm. physical store. So what was the motivation behind doing that? Well, um, when we, I'll just, I'll just quickly take you on a quick journey of our, like our living situation. So when, when John and I, John and I first moved in together, we, we basically like lived in a tiny little apartment and we always, we've never had a separate studio. We kind of just kind of always just worked in our, our homes and things like that. And then after we moved from there, we moved into our condo, a really tiny condo. And this was just before Liam was born. And then we took on a studio at the distillery district, which is like kind of a historical area in Toronto. And when I had Liam, I mean, it was really hard to like go from home with all of his things and then go work in the studio. And so after we had lived there for a bit, we found this um, great warehouse studio where it was like a 2000 square foot studio and we were able to live there and work there. And when we did that, it worked out really well. And um, the reason why we decided to have a brick and mortar was because uh, with John, John's furniture, he always would get appointments from customers and it was, you know, it was always kind of hard kind of scheduling it all. And then we thought, well, we need a place where people know what our hours are and they'll just come when we're there. And so then I started dreaming about having a storefront, um, place and it had to be kind of in the downtown area. It couldn't be too far away. And, and it was really expensive. And, um, but we were, we able, were able to make it happen because when we bought our, um, our loft space, um, it was a power of sale. I'm not sure if you know what that means. No, I don't. A power of sale is basically when um, someone doesn't pay their mortgage anymore. Okay. And so bank um, takes it over. Like a foreclosure. Foreclosure, yeah. And so when the bank takes it over, they sell it for whatever the person was owing on their mortgage. They don't sell it for market value. Okay. And so we were able to get this huge space for basically like nothing because the place was abandoned by this person and we had to do a lot of work to fix it. But that place gave us, when we sold it, we sold it for market value. And so for, we made, you know, some money from that place. And so we were able to, to buy our place, our, our shop now. And, and we wanted a place that basically had a storefront, had a studio and a living space all in one. And, and then this place had come up and this place was, um, it took them forever to sell it because it just was kind of, you know, dumpy. And, but we saw the potential, like we saw that it was, you know, the, the interesting thing about the place, which we're happy about was the people who owned it covered it all up. And so we just took all that stuff off and then it revealed this really nice, you know, um, 18th century building. So it was kind of great that way, but we had to have a space like that because, you know, with our kids, that was really the main reason was because we had our kids and we wanted our kids to, you know, not having to be schlepped back and forth from studio and, and then also them being able to kind of play and do their own thing while we're working. Right. So, so right. Having home and work in one um, physical space together allows you to do both jobs um, of parenthood and your work job together all at once. And that is the only way we've been able to balance it. And, and it's been going well so far. So it's, I'm kind of glad we made that decision to do that. And part of the reason why we wanted to have a brick and mortar too, was because the, you know, a lot of um, 
people that I kind of started my business with, like other colleagues had started to kind of, you know, get things manufactured and did things overseas. And we've always done things like in the studio. And I kind of, I always love people's reaction when they come in. They're always like, what? You've, you made this? Like, you know, and it's always kind of interesting to see that they see the whole process. They see, they can see where I print. They can, you know, our sewing areas in the actual shop. And, and so they love it. And I think that it makes them appreciate our work more. And, um, and yeah, they just love it. They love seeing the fact that we actually physically made these things that were, that are sitting in the shop. And and I think it's good for people to see that, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's such a rare thing that I think it's striking for people to see it too. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit, like, what is your typical day like now? And, um, how old are, how old are, um, Liam and Piper now? Liam is 10 and Piper is seven. Um, So what does your typical random, you know, Tuesday look like? Maybe, I mean, right now it's the summertime. So maybe during a school year, I don't know if it's different for you in the summer and the school year. No, it's pretty much the same. I mean, we, we, you know, we try to take some time off um, to go to the cottage and things like that. But most of the times it's, you know, my typical day always starts with, um, you know, getting up and then um, checking emails. Um, uh, you know, I always have so many emails to go through. So I, and then I have to check, you know, I, I have to check like the social medias, you know, I have to check because sometimes people leave you messages on like Instagram and Facebook and then I have to check my Etsy. And then like, there's so many kind of things to check. And that usually takes about, I don't know, an hour and a half to two hours. And then our schedule, our weekly schedule is really based on shipping when we ship. And so, um, we ship out Tuesdays and Fridays and, um, Alex does, um, all the shipping. And is and, Alex your, is one of your employees? Yeah. And okay. Alex, Alex, um, you know, she, she came to, to work with me as an intern. She was at Sheridan college, which is, um, a community college, um, in Toronto, um, that, you know, has different sort of craft disciplines and she was in the textile program. And so she came to work with me as an intern and, and I really liked her. And, and so, um, when she graduated, she was working somewhere else. And then she had contacted me and asked me if I needed anybody, you know, and I was like, at that point, I I did need someone. So I hired her on and she's been with us for almost two years. Um, and you know, I've had other employees and they kind of move on to kind of create their own businesses or, you know, move away. And so, um, and my mom, she, she had lived in France for a long time for over 20 years. And so, um, her husband passed away six years ago. And so she had come back to Canada and, you know, she was still kind of, you know, she's a little over 60 and, you know, she still has lots of energy. And so that's why she started working for me because she just wanted to have some, you know, extra income for when she's traveling and things like that. And so it works out great. Cause like my mother, I always think I'm like a fast make like sewer. My mom is faster than me. She's like crazy. <laughs> That's why I, a lot of people are like, how do you get things done? Like my mom is like my crazy. secret weapon. <laughs> yeah. She like can make the amount that she makes, you know, sometimes, sometimes like if I go on someone's Instagram and they take a picture, look what I spent the week making and they have like their little piles. Right. And I always giggle to myself. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, that took you a week. My mother can do all that in like a day. Right. And so it's, I'm, I'm really lucky to have her. And so basically our week is, is sort of dependent on, on when, what items need to be made to be shipped out. And we try to have a lot of things pre-made because we do, you know, small craft shows throughout the year. And then the really big one, like the one of a kind show, and um, we're still doing that show. So it's been 12 years since we first started doing that show. And and we're still doing that show. And so throughout the whole week, it's, it's like we make 
you know, tons of things. And then if there's something that's specific that needs to be done for an order, because I get a lot of sort of special requests, then we make that so during the week. So it's really much um, all day production. And my head is like a computer. So I, I look at things and I know exactly, okay, we have to start making these items because this is getting low or, you know, we have to like, so it's all, and then, you know, Alex and my mom, they just kind of follow suit on whatever needs to be done. And so Alex, you know, does a lot of the, um, sort of studio stuff, like she'll cut or heats up the fabric and she does all like a, a variety of things. And my mom only does sewing. Okay. And so how many hours would you say are like, what, when is your start time and stop time? Or do you work again at like in the evenings or is it all during the daytime? Like what are the hours look like for you? Um, so usually I start the day like about nine and then, um, it's really, it's really busy. Like I don't take lunch breaks, you know, I just like, I'll just eat something while I'm working. So I start from nine until, until Alex and my mom are done and they done, they're done usually at five. And then when they're done at five, I usually kind of start cleaning up the studio and just sort of organizing for my evening shift. Um, and then by that time when they're about, when they're leaving, you know, the kids have come back from school, the kids get back from school, like around three thirty four, and then they play for a bit. And then we have dinner and we always, we always make it a habit that we always sit down for dinner. And, and that's like our real quality time with the kids. And we chat about, you know, what they've done. And we spend usually about an hour um, eating and then, you know, the kids, you know, play for a bit and then we get them ready for bed. It's really a really short time with them during the evenings. And then, um, we start again, probably like around nine and then we work till two or three in the morning. So it's pretty much our schedule. And sometimes I will start earlier. Like sometimes I, I, if I have a really busy schedule, um, you know, I start working like right after dinner, you know, and a lot of the times, you know, um, you know, somebody asked me what that, uh, asked me once about, you know, the, the time that I spend with the kids and things like that. And, and the thing is a lot of the times the kids and I were always around each other doing stuff, but we're doing separate stuff, but we're always there together. You know, we're not maybe sitting there physically for hours at a time, but we're always together. Like if, you know, Piper's in the studio with me, she'll be sitting there working on her own projects and we're chatting, but I'm not, you know, sort of stopped working and sitting there with her. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, no, I I think it does make sense. And I think it's very, it's very easy in this day and age to sort of make yourself feel guilty as, I don't know, as a dad, because I'm not a dad, but as a mom, um, that you're supposed to sort of stop everything and mm-hmm. say, and I'm not talking about dinner time when, yes, you do stop everything and sit and focus, but I'm talking about sort of, you know, after school time or weekend time or whatever, where you're supposed to sort of stop everything and sit and like play a game or have that focused attention with your child like that. And um, I guess I feel like it's sort of a modern expectation because I can't imagine that parents in the past sort of stopped all their work to sit and play with their children. Like I don't, I just don't think that that was the expectation, but mm-hmm. somehow today, like that's what you're supposed to do. And um, I don't necessarily think it's, I mean, maybe there are, there are times when that's appropriate and the right thing to do, but I don't think it is actually the best way uh, to be a mom, you know? 
I mean, like I, I try not to like sugarcoat things. I mean, a lot of people know I'm a working mom and I, and I'm not that type of mom. Like I'm not a, a you know, I don't cook, right. John does all the cooking. Cause I, I don't know how to cook. Like, I mean, like my kids tell me how to cook. They cook, the <laughs> kids, the kids can cook better than me. And it's just, and you know, and my mom's a great cook and, and they're always like, why don't you cook like your mom? And I'm just like, that just wasn't my interest. You know, like I see food as sort of just like a substance, like, okay, I have to eat. So I'm not going to fall over. But I don't sit there like John has an interest in food. You know, he's he buys a lot of cookbooks, he gets the magazines, he loves the cooking shows. Like he has a real interest in it, right? And I don't have that interest, right? And so um I've never been sort of that type of, you know, stay-at-home cooking mom doing all these different things and but I feel like what they take from me is is uh is just as, you know, rewarding, you know, that the fact that I they see how, you know, how hardworking I am and how focused and determined I am. And, and, and they've grown up to be like really creative and independent children, you know? And I, and I think that that was great. You know, like, um, I, when they, even when they were little, like, I mean, there's pictures of Liam and the baby Bjorn on my chest while I'm sewing, you know, cause he was napping and I'd be like sewing and, uh, you know, so they're just, they're just used to it. They just know that's just how I am. Right. right. And so, um, yeah. And, and I find like, and on Sundays we usually don't, you know, we usually take Sundays off and we do something with the kids, like a, a day trip of, or, or do some type of activity. So we try to do that. And then in the evenings, you know, after we have dinner, we always go for walks and things like that. So they, they get a lot of our time. So, um, and then we're always here. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good. I think that's a really good, you know, model. And it's a good thing for people to hear. Like there's just multiple ways to do this well. You know, there's multiple ways to run a business well, and there's multiple ways to be a parent well, and to do both of those things at the same time. Um, and it's challenging for everybody, but there are ways to make it work. Um, and it, uh, you know, anyway, but it's, it, but it's hard work. I mean, you're up late, you know, you're working really late and, um, putting in a lot of hours. So, yeah. And, and everyone always wonders why, why do you like, do you really work that many? Like, do you really have that much stuff to do? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, even when I, even when I don't have like production work to do, there's like things like other people don't realize that you do like you're designing, <laughs> you know, you're, you're doing prototypes for new items or new patterns. Like there's all these things that you're trying to squeeze in every, every moment, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, right. and so that's, yeah. So you're trying all the time to, to keep it all kind of together. And, and, and the reason why we work so hard too, is because, you know, like both John and I are like middle age and we just feel like, in this day and age, you know, if things are going well, we have to kind of just keep the wheel turning because in 10 years, we might not be successful. You know, we might not be doing well. So we have to kind of take it while we have it, you know? Mm. And so that's sort of the reason too, that we're working so hard now because it's, things are going well, business is good. So I have to kind of just keep it going, you know, and, because you never know what's going to happen, right? I mean, things change in the world so much and design changes and there's so many more people. And I mean, when I started the one of the kind show, there was probably like a handful of screen printers. And now if you go to the show, there's like hundreds, like hundreds and hundreds of screen printers yeah. that are doing all different kinds of things. And so um, it's a really competitive market and you have to always be on your toes and kind of, you know, kind of keep going right so yeah that's fascinating and I, I to think about why that is like why there's hundreds now when there was just a handful 
you know, 10 years ago? Like what, what caused that is sort of something to ponder. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about Instagram because um, I, I promised that we would loop back there. So you have a beautiful Instagram and um, I'm not the only one who thinks it's beautiful. You have 77.8 thousand Instagram followers as of this morning. So I wondered if you wanted to share a little bit about your approach to Instagram, sort of how you think about it, um, how you use it and sort of what purpose it serves for your business. Um, well, I was kind of late on getting onto the Instagram train, partly because I don't have a phone, which I know is very shocking. A lot of people are always shocked when they find out I don't have a phone. And I do all of my Instagram before on an iPad, and now I do it on an iPod. Um, when I first started doing Instagram, I thought it was like, you know, like the word instant. Like it was just like, oh, here, I'm doing something, you know, when it's, you know, midnight take a picture of it. And it's like a poor photo, but that's what I'm doing at that moment. Right. And I did that for like months and, you know, and I just thought that's just how it is. Right. It's very raw and unfiltered. And then I started to realize, Oh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a place to collect a lot of really nice images because I would start following other people and realize, Oh, these are like, their photos are really amazing. Like they're taking the time and effort to like take a really good photo. And it's not like all these really crappy photos that I was just taking because I just thought it was about what I was doing at that moment, which I still think that that, that should be part of it, you know, and I'm kind of sad that it's not part of that now. Um, and so I just started to think of it more as, um, as like a journal, like the blogs, right. Where it was just kind of collecting my, you know, my process, my day to day and things that I've been working on. So I just treated it more like as, as I did before in the blog. And, um, and, and to be quite honest, I really enjoy using Instagram. I think that when you're doing any type of thing that isn't really part of your day-to-day, -day, like, you know, working on your business, I think you have to really enjoy it. And I think if you don't really enjoy it, it starts to kind of become like a job and then people start kind of not wanting to do it and then they're not putting as much effort into it. And then it just, it kind of just falls away. And so I think with Instagram, I've always really kind of, enjoy doing it. And I enjoy, you know, seeing what other people are doing and, and I enjoy the feedback. I really do. And I find like, um, that's probably my favorite part is when somebody's like reacting to it and talking. And then, and then I've made Instagram friends with people that are, you know, different parts of the world that I would love to meet in person, you know, and it's, and it's been really great for someone like me who's kind of, you know, um, working all the time and, and then having these connections with people that are, uh, you know, doing similar things that you are and, and having that kind of um, personal connection. So I, I really enjoyed that part of it. And are you taking photos every day or are you taking a lot of photos one day and then sort of spreading them out throughout the week? I take pictures every day. Okay. And, um, usually when I post the photos, that's usually just after I photograph. Okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, uh, immediate. And sometimes, you know, I'll have like a group of photos. Like, let's say I had a really good session of taking some pictures of plants and I've taken five or six photos. Sometimes if I don't have anything I want, I can post, I'll post a picture that I've taken from before, but it's, it's a very small amount. A lot of the times the pictures that I took are, are from like that, just at that moment, at that time. Okay. Um, and at the time I used to take a lot of the photos from the, um, the iPod, you know, surprisingly those iPod things take really good photos. And when I'm on vacation and things, all my photos are done on the iPod because I just can't be bothered carrying around a big camera. Um, and I'm always surprised at how good those photos always turn out. And, um, but a lot of the times I take photos with the camera 
And the only reason why I do that is because sometimes you don't get the right kind of depth of field. And, and I want my photos to have a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, structure. And I find a lot of the times the photos that you take with the mobile devices, they kind of flatten it. And it has this kind of flatness to it that I, I really don't like. Okay, and so, so I, you're taking pictures with your DSLR and then <laughs> emailing them to yourself? Yeah, I, I usually, I, when I do it on the computer, I put it in my Dropbox and then I have a Dropbox app on my iPod. So I just pull it out of the Dropbox. So I would say majority of the photos are from a, or like a DSLR camera. But right. a lot of the times when I'm not at home, it's uh, all from an iPod. Okay. So it's really hard. I try to... I try to make them all kind of really similar and consistent. Um, and, and I find like a lot of um, my, my photos are really much based on my process, things that I'm doing, things that I'm working on, and then like things that are um, – and I'm really interested in nature. So there's always a lot of sort of nature and plant photos. And then occasionally I'll post pictures of the kids um, or, and things that we're doing at the moment, but it's very much a mixture of things. I don't really, I, sometimes I don't know if it's consistent enough, but then, you know, um, I used to really care a lot about Instagram, like people liking photos and people commenting. Um, and and now I don't really care as much because I just feel like I'm just going to keep doing this for myself. And if people like it, great. If they don't, there's nothing I really can do about it. You know, it's really hard. Sometimes I think it's a great photo and I love it and then nobody likes it. And then a photo that I don't really think much about it, it like gets thousands of likes, you know, it's really kind of, you can't really judge it. It's really hard. Yeah. But I think letting your own, um, interests and your own enjoyment be the guide is important because that, and, you know, in a way, it's kind of like leadership. Like, you you know, there's there's a kind of a pull and a push between listening to the customers and listening to the audience and what they like best, and then also sort of guiding the ship, you know, sort of steering and making those aesthetic decisions. And then, um, you know, so anyway, I, I kind of, I kind of appreciate people who are able to let some of that uh, feedback piece fall away and really allow their own interests to to be the guide. And also a lot of the times when I post my pictures, I kind of let the photos speak for themselves because I feel like Instagram is very much about the image and I don't really put a lot of a description. And I always find that I get a lot of feedback when I, when I open up a little bit more and I'm a little bit more personal. I remember I did this post about my father, like on his birthday, and I talked a bit about their experience, you know, when they, when they left our country to come to Canada and it really touched a lot of people. And I, I just, the response was incredible. Like it was just, I was really touched by it and just how their, their story resonated with so many people. Yeah. And, um, so it's, so it's always really interesting to see, you know, because I don't open up all the time because it would be exhausting to open up all the time. I would feel, I would feel like such an open book and I feel like, um, it's so hard to do things like social media because you are opening up yourself. You know, you're showing your creative side and you're showing so much of you that when you start talking about your personal feelings, it can get really, really vulnerable. And I find like sometimes it's too much for me, but for some reason, like that post was just appropriate. Like I wanted to say happy birthday to my dad, but I wanted to talk too about the fact of their sacrifices and what they did in order for them to come over to Canada and for us to have a better life and, and, and what we're, you know, what I'm trying to do, me and my siblings to kind of make 
that life and make that sacrifice that they made worthwhile. So it, it, I felt like I had to tell that story. So it was sort of um, there, but, you know, and every so often I, you know, sometimes um, I remember I, I did um, a post about my daughter, she was being bullied at school and I had to kind of, I felt like I had to talk about it. And that was sort of another post that a lot of people really, um, it, 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 you know, affected them. So it's, 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 um, it's kind of a balance, a fine balance. I know some people who do Instagram, they're, talk about their personal lives all the time. And I just, sometimes I feel like, Oh my gosh, how can you do that? I just feel like it's so much, you know, so much personal information that people know about you. Yeah. And I think it's, in the end, it's a business Instagram, right? It's not really right. a Rona. So I think that talking a bit about myself is, is also about me and who I am as, as the, uh, as the person behind the company, but it's not really a personal um, Instagram page. So I have to kind of have a nice balance of, of, of all those things. Yeah. And it's encouraging to people to hear that, you know, you don't have to be personal all the time in order for it to be effective. That it sounds like, you know, for you, there is, you know, the occasional time and that's enough. And, um, anyway, everyone can strike their own balance and there's no expectation that you're all one way or all another. Um, and it can still work. So I think that's encouraging. So, okay. I want to make sure we have a little bit of time left to, um, focus on some of your recommendations and, um, you wanted to recommend a game, uh, and this is actually a game that my kids also really, really like. <laughs> a babysitter introduced this to my kids maybe a year ago, and they love it. It's called Monument Valley. Yeah, Monument Valley is such an interesting app. Um, I don't even know how I was in – I think my kids had it, and, and we pulled it up. And it's just, you know – I'm, I don't play it enough to be really good at it. Um, the kids are really good at it and, and they can figure out all the different things that you have to push and move. But I just, I think the kids love it when I'm sitting there watching them play because I'm always kind of gasping. You're like, Oh my God, it did that. You know, and I think, I think they really enjoy my reaction to it. Um, it's just, I find it's like, it's such a beautiful, um, game. Like visually, it's so interesting, and and the things that it does, and 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 the sort of imaginary scenes and the story it tells, I just think it's such a, a fun, a fun game. I feel like it's not too. Um, sometimes I feel like some video games are kind of mind numbing, and I feel like this one because it's like kind of a puzzle. I feel like it makes you use your brain a little bit more to kind of figure out what you have to do in order to make um, the little girl move. So yeah, it's a good one. If you haven't gotten Monument Valley, we recommend it. It's a good one. Um, and then you recommend the tulip sewing needles. Yeah. A friend of mine who's a quilter had suggested it. And, you know, I, I have never really, you know, when I first started making things, I would just use whatever I had. And I never really kind of gave it a second thought that, you know, certain tools make things better. And then as I, you know, did the business more, you know, I'd get better scissors and better this. And then I just never thought about the needles, but those needles are just fantastic. And they come in all different sizes for all different things that you have to do, like embroidery or, or quilting. And they're, um, they're made in Japan and they're just, they're just amazing. Like they, they are so smooth and, um, I don't really know what else to say about them. They're just really great. And I feel like they're, 
there's something you should definitely have in your sewing kit. Yeah. And good tools make all the difference for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And you're right that when you first start out with a new hobby, you don't really know better. So you don't realize that the things that you have probably on hand are not the best things. And so some of the results that you're getting aren't the best results because of that. Mm -hmm. And then the deeper you get into it, the more you see, oh, if I upgrade, then things do work out better. It's easier and I can make things look better. I know like, like cutting, I used to use like metal scissors and then at the end of the day, my hand would be killing me. So now I use like, you know, um, scissors that with, with like the soft handles because it's just more comfortable for like, you know, cutting for hours rather than like the really heavy metal shears. And so like, yeah, little things like that. You just, you're just doing things and you're just, you're just getting by and you don't realize that it's making you uncomfortable or it's hurting your hand. And then you don't make that decision to change it. But yeah, when she told when she told me about the needles, and when I started using them, I'm like, oh my god, these are the best <laughs> needles ever. <laughs> that makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, well, Arena, it was really wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Abby. Take care. Okay, and you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, WalshyNaps.com where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And be sure to visit our sponsor, Teresa Escone. Are you ready for the next step? Teresa Escone's intermediate watercolor tutorials expand on the beginner series with new techniques and more complex drawings. For ages 12 and older, there are written instructions, a line drawing, a full color frameable image of the art, and definitions. Completion time is three to four hours. Thank you so much, Teresa Escone. And if you enjoy this show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time. 